Welcome to the What to Watch podcast. I'm the host, Ricky Camilleri. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with What to Watch, we are a show on AOL.com, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 3 p.m., or you can look at the archive of all of our shows, all of our sketches and interviews at AOL.com backslash what to watch, as well as our YouTube page, youtube.com backslash what to watch. Uh, our podcast is made up of interviews that we've done for the show, a lot of them pretty long form. Today we have our interview with uh, actor and director Alex Karpovsky, who you may know as Ray from the show Girls. He uh, was the one-time romantic partner of the character Shoshana, and then he became a slight romantic partner for Allison Williams's character, and he owns a coffee shop, and he did some local politics. Uh, really, really funny actor and New York personality. He's also the director of five films, uh, The Whole Story, Woodpecker, Red Flag, uh, and, uh, and a few others. Um, really interesting conversation about making low-budget film, about acting uh, for Lena Dunham, acting on Girls, and directing on Girls. Uh, in the last season of Girls, which I would consider its best season, I think a lot of people have been saying that, and I completely agree, it is quite possibly the best season of that show. Alex directed the second-to-last episode um, the episode that featured Jenny Slate, and uh, we talked a little bit about uh, how Alex put his stamp on that episode without sort of deviating from the uh, the world that Girls had already created for itself aesthetically. And uh, we talked about him working with Lena and Jenny Slate and Jenny Connor, uh, trying to develop stuff for television, and um, you know the years it took him to really become a director, how long it took him to finish his first film. I think he said two or three years. Sometimes he had to go back and reshoot stuff because he was learning on the fly. Uh, it's a really interesting conversation. Check it out. Guys, I'm joined right now by Alex Karpovsky, uh, writer, director, and one of the stars of HBO's Girls, where he plays Ray. Alex, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having uh, me. Congratulations. In this last season of Girls, you directed an episode. I did. So how did, uh, let's, let's start with how that happened. How did that start? Did you ask? I didn't ask. Um, I didn't ask. Uh, but we were shooting uh, in a, our wedding episode, Desi and Marnie's wedding episode upstate. And uh, Lena came over with Jenny, our showrunner, Eileen, our producer. Um, and they asked me if I was interested, if this is something that appeals to me. And I said, yeah, I think this would be a lot of fun. They said, great. Then they came back a few weeks later and, and uh, assigned an episode, specific episode to me. And now, you know, you've been on the show for five years. You worked with Lena before <laughs> on Tiny Furniture. You're clearly have a, a good relationship with her, your friends. Do you feel like this in many ways was her kind of being like, you're my friend, I want you to, I want you to do this part of the show as well now? I think so, yeah. I think part of it is that the fact that we're friendly and I think Lena and Jenny go out of their way to hook up their friends. Uh, but I hope another part of it is also the fact that she likes some of my ideas and likes some of my movies. And oh, yeah, you're talented. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that part, too. <laughs> I, I hope it's a harmonious mixture of those two things. But no, uh, Lena... I can see how that question could sound a little like, so they're just helping you out, right? <laughs> um, but they do really help out a lot of uh, their talented friends um, a lot, and I think that's something they take a lot of pride in. Just one example of that, we have a sound guy, a boom operator, Jason, and he's been talking to Lena and Jenny about this little documentary he's been working on. And they're like, that sounds like a really great idea. It's about a, transge a, a tailor that makes transgendered clothes. Yeah, this is the doc that they premiered at Sundance, and, right? And they hopped on board. They helped him out. Wow. And it, 
HBO helped out and they premiered at Sundance and it's gonna show on HBO. So that's just like one example of them like helping helping people out in the family. So the set of girls is a pretty collaborative atmosphere then. Mm -hmm. Very, very much so. And uh, I think that's something that not only they take pride in, but it's also just sort of, I think it's woven in, in sort of the feeling and fabric of the show. Like if you're, uh, if you're there for a while and you're kind of part of this world that we're running around in, I think it would be weird if you didn't collaborate. Mm -hmm. you, I think you'd feel sort of confused and marginalized if you weren't sort of making your opinions and voice heard. Let's backtrack a minute because uh, before you were the, one of the stars of Girls, you're a filmmaker, and you made uh, The Whole Story, you made another movie called Woodpecker, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, Rubberneck, Red Flag. Um, what was it like for you going from making those movies and even making Tiny Furniture to really getting on girls? Because there wasn't really anything in between in terms of size, right? It was really jumping from these very small, low-budget movies to girls. Totally. It was a very big jump. I'd never been on like a big studio union set before. Um, so it was really, uh, it was really, um, it was, it was, in terms of scale, it was a big jump. But, you know, I, I think I deal with, I, I dealt with it by kind of denial and repression. <laughs> I deal with a lot of fear, um, in the sense that when when we were there for the pilot and we're on this big sort of to me scary soundstage, I just I just told myself I remember this very clearly. Uh, this isn't going to get picked up. This isn't going to get picked up. Right. You know, the majority of HBO pilots. I don't know if this is true, but I was telling myself this. Don't get picked up. Well, the majority and, of pilots in general. Yeah, it's just like and, and a lot of great people like great people have made pilots. And for HBO specifically, that just didn't work for HBO. I'm pretty sure like Noah Baumbach made a pilot for the corrections yeah. that didn't get picked up. I mean, yeah, and, and a billion other people too. So, yeah, and, and, uh, and so that sort of calmed me down. And then when we shot the first season, I basically told myself, well, it's probably going to be a one and done. <laughs> so I, I had to keep sort of telling myself. But, but at a certain point, like after, you know, two or three seasons, you're just like, okay, People, I guess, are watching the show, and that's great. And but at that point, you've eased into the jacuzzi, and mm -hmm. you're no longer sort of terrified by how the scale of things. Sort of go into it with a kind of like, uh, well, they hired me, so, well, if, if if I don't do well, that's on them. <laughs> sort of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, let's go back to sort of the films that you were making and how you ended up making them. You were the star of you're the star of all of your films, right? Um, my first movie, I was the I, I was the main guy. Yeah. Whole story. Woodpecker, I did an act in. I made a documentary called Trust Us. This is all made up. Mm -hmm. I did an act in that. And then the last two, Rubberneck and Red Flag, I acted in. Yeah. Did you? Was it always the dream to be an actor slash filmmaker, or did you act in the films initially just because that was how you were going to get them made? It was almost by default you had to be in them. It was the latter. It was by default. Um, I didn't make, I didn't go to film school and I didn't make any short movies. Um, so I think I should have made a sh few short movies. It would have saved me a lot of uh, difficult learning by fire. Um, but um, I made my first movie when I was uh, 28, 29, and um, I knew that I was going to make a lot of mistakes, and I knew it was going to be one of those shoot, edit, shoot, edit, and it was just going to take forever. And I didn't really have trust that any actor, I didn't act in anything before, but I didn't have trust finding an actor, I didn't have trust finding an actor that would stick around for the year and a half, two years, that ended up being three years, to make the movie. Like, who else is going to like be that patient for a project that's not theirs? Who else is not going to change their haircut for three years yeah. so we can kind of make, make this movie? So it was kind of by default, by all those reasons, that I ended up acting in that thing. It was my first movie, and then I started acting. You weren't an actor, but you, were a perf you performed, though, didn't you? Weren't you like a kind of a performer? I was, I was a failed stand-up comic. <laughs> I don't know if you call that a performer. It's more of a masochist. Yeah. How did that start? 
Um, I went to grad school in England for anthropology, and I just met a bunch of peop funny people there, people that were kind of dabbling in sketch comedy and stand-up, and they kind of, kind of, with them, I kind of start, I started kind of going up there. Also, just being away in a different country and away from all my kind of past to some degree um, emboldened me, yeah. I think. I can kind of pretend I'm someone else to some degree and reinvent myself. So No I, one's going to see me and be like, this is not something that you've ever done. Right. You're, no, don't yeah, try. Exactly. Yeah. And if you fail, you can just go 5,000 miles away and hopefully forget <laughs> about it. Uh, and I did fail, and it did go away. Uh, but, it, but it did sort of get me excited about... Um, kind of weird, back then it was called alternative comedy, when alternative was still used as sort of a descriptor of countercultural elements. Or performance art, right? Or performance art. I was really into Andy Kaufman at the time, um, and just was really kind of, I, I didn't know Andy Kaufman's performance art st or comedy stuff until I was in grad school. Uh, I was late to the game, but um, when I discovered it, I just kind of really went into it and, and fell in love with it. So I dropped out of grad school, moved to New York, and there was sort of a really fun uh, alternative comedy scene here, um, which I was sort of on the periphery of. Um, people like Eugene Merman, Louis C.K., Sarah Silverman, Janine Garofalo, Mark Marin, uh, Sloven and Allen, Zach Galifianakis, tons of awesome people. Yeah, who were performing at like Rafifi or like or downtown, yeah. Rafifi, and then before that there was a place called the Luna Lounge in right. the East Village near Katz's Deli that on Monday nights was packed. It was the scene. It was really fun. What was it like watching those guys? I mean, because for someone who's, I, I think, maybe breaking into comedy now or trying to get into comedy, they are, at this point, the masters. They're the kind of people that you watch at this point and say, well, I, I could, it's inspiring, but you're like, I could never really do that. It's like going out to make a gangster film and watching The Godfather beforehand. Mm -hmm. You know, it mm -hmm. just feels almost impossible to be that good. But what was it like watching them at that time at the Luna Lounge? Were they sort of inspiring, scrappy comedians that you felt like you could also be like that? Well, I aspired to be like them. Um, th most of those people were older. I, this, I was in my early 20s. Most of those people were a little bit older than me and already had a foothold. In, they, had, they had some success. I think Louie was already writing for Conan. I can't remember everything, mm -hmm. but people are already kind of making their way, and they're already, you kind of see them in bit spots on TV. So they weren't quite as, I wouldn't use the word, I mean, they were still scrappy, but they were already kind of well on their way. Mm -hmm. um, and I aspired to be like them, but I also kind of knew that, like, I, w I, 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 I wasn't able to kind of extend um, my four or five, if I had a four or five minute bit that worked, which was rare, I wasn't able to <laughs> expand it to a seven or eight minute because it, it was just like, a, it was an Andy Kaufman thing. It was just sort of this little one act play. Right. And you're, it's, usually rooted in the assumption that the audience doesn't know that you're playing a character initially. It's a slow reveal that you're actually someone else. And you what can't... kind of characters did you have? Well, I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a little silly to talk about because it didn't really go anywhere, but uh, I played this Russian comic who just um, had, didn't really understand the language very well. And then I did this elaborate thing with a, a boombox where I would like play different cassette tapes at different times. So he um, was doing stand-up, but he didn't speak English that well. So he was... had a translator, and the <laughs> joke and the translator. This is the guy who actually I went to grad school with. We were kind of doing stuff together at the time, and he would sort of mistranslate my jokes in a way that was sometimes funny, sometimes just really stupid. So now you sort of decide to perform or make this movie, the whole story, which is a sort of, it's like a semi-documentary. I mean, it's yeah. all fictional, but it's presented as a documentary in many ways, right? Yeah, I mean, well, like going back to this Andy Kaufman thing, like uh, I wanted people to think it was one thing and then slowly and hopefully comedically reveal it to be another thing. So we, I, wanted I wanted to lure people into this feeling that it's a documentary, 
but, uh, but it's very much you know, a designed story, a premeditated idea. And, but, and we would sort of comedically un unveil the fact that, no, this is actually part of a constructed world. Um, and, and one of the sort of parts of that is we wanted to kind of create a fictitious story within a real setting, which um, was really interesting to me at the time. So there was a real phenomenon in northern Minnesota in the lake, uh, in the winter, there's one lake surrounded by hundreds of lakes that inexplicably doesn't freeze over completely. And it creates an enormous, they call it the black hole of open water. And they had all these environmentalist uh, uh, specialists trying to figure out what was going on. They couldn't, so they, be, they made it into this strange, tortured, pathetic, yet charming tourist attraction. Um, and so that was a real thing that really happened. And then it created sort of a fictitious story around it. How long did it take you to make the film? Three years. Took you three years. Yeah, because I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I, I never did anything before, so I just made one mistake after another after another. And that, that didn't discourage you at all, the amount of time that it took you, or did it encourage you that because you had suddenly learned how to do this and you felt like the next one that you make could be better or done a little bit quicker? The latter. I, I was hoping the next one I would learn from mistakes, I'd have more resources. If there's any momentum at all from the first one, maybe I can sort of translate it into having a little bit of financial resources. That ended up not happening. <laughs> um, I made the second movie just as cheaply as the first one, but I did make it a lot faster. It took you know a year to make just because, yeah, you learn from your mistakes and you learn. I wasn't in it. That helped. And I had an external editor the whole way through, which also helped. What kind of, I'm kind of curious, what mistakes, if you can remember, what mistakes do you feel like you made uh, on the first film that, that you learned from? I'm sure there was possibly too many to count because it took three years, and you know, as you said, you didn't know what you were doing, but what were some of the major mistakes that, looking back, almost feel like if you had gone to film school or you had grown up on a film set or something, you would have known not to make those mistakes? Oh, you're really opening the Hurt Locker here. <laughs> I'm going into those repressed traumatic episodes. Well, basic, 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 basic stuff I didn't know. Like, I didn't know coverage. Like, if we're doing an interview, like, I just wouldn't right. know how to cover it. You know, no one really, I was working with, like, my friends, and a lot of people didn't really know either. You'd be, like, panning from whoever was talking to whoever's yeah, talking. Yeah, or, like, the camera angles wouldn't match, or the eye lines wouldn't match. I wouldn't know how to get, like, correct audio. Like, why do we have a white balance? Like, like, idiotic stuff that you should, like, you can learn in, like, a two-hour YouTube tutorial. Even that stuff, like, I, I was just making mistakes on all the time. But this was pre-YouTube, so. There you go, thank you. That was my saving grace, I guess. Um, and then, you know, I was in it and I wanted it to be perfect. That's sort of a mindset that I've slowly kind of massaged. Like I was obsessed with everything had to be perfect, so I would just reshoot things, reshoot things, reshoot things all the time. So they would be technically perfect, and then I'd realize, but a lot of the character and soul of it is gone, and then I'd go back and try to reshoot it again. And a lot of the stuff, uh, you know, after like a year, you slowly lose people. Um, obviously, no one's getting paid, and it's not a passion. I mean, no one, people realize, like, oh, this is just for him, and I get that. So, you know, then you start using tripods. So a lot of the stuff was like you record, it's like basement stuff, and you go on the other side. Wow. My mom shot the whole third act by her, you know, just me and her, you know. <laughs> it was kind of desperate and pathetic at the end. What very, propelled very you sad. forward through all this? What, what made you keep, continue to pursue it? Well, I would stop all the time. One of the reasons it took three years is because I would stop for like two or three months at a time just because I would just be fed up. And then you kind of say, well, you can't just throw away this time. Maybe there's a way to cobble it together. So just I think the fear of just knowing that all that time is thrown away is what kept me going. It was an excitement. I mean, I was really over the idea after like two months. It was just like, you can't, you can't give up on this thing, I guess.
and then you finish this film and you move forward and obviously you're learning more as you go along and then you make a film like like Red Flag, right? Which is pretty much run and gun. Were you filming that while you were kind of already touring festivals or did you, how did you set that up? Yeah, so uh, I made a movie a few years before Red Flag called Woodpecker and this organization um, put it on a small lo-fi kind of rinky-dink tour of the south where you'd play it at like film clubs and small little art house theaters for like 20 or 30 people. You do a Q&A, you try to hawk some merch in the lobby, DVDs or whatever. And you know, they paid for your hotel, these like motels, hotels, and your rental car. So I, they had like uh, 14 or 15 stops through the south. So, you know, they said, do you want to go on this tour? And I said, sure, and you're flattered when everyone, anyone wants to show your stuff. Um, but as the tour date approached, I got very uh, anxious that it's going to be a really lonely thing to just drive around showing a movie you're kind of over for really small audiences. It felt kind of sad to me and lonely. Yeah. So then I was like, can we make a movie out of this? Maybe I can bring some friends along and we can make a movie about the tour. And that's sort of how it started. And it was really, really fun. It was just four of us, really, for the most part. Me, two other actors, and a crew member, uh, my friend Adam Ginsberg, who did camera and sound. We had a wow. one-person crew with no lights. And it was the most fun I've ever had working on any of my projects by far. It was so freeing. It cost $6,000 to make, and there was just no pressure. It's like, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It's not the end of the world. Um, and I'm not going to spend more than like four or five months on this. And that's the movie I'm most proud of, too. Really? Mm -hmm, Would you so. do it again? No. <laughs> Why is that? Well, because uh, if you make a movie for six, I mean, look, I think, I think there's a lot of uh, exceptions to this you, you can come up with. But for the most part, when you make a movie for $6,000, um, it's not going to have a lot of production value and it's not going to have name actors. And if you don't have those two things, no matter how good the story, for the most part, um, it's going to be really hard for the movie to reach an audience. Do there you are exceptions. Do you, of course there are exceptions. Uh, do you think that's a more recent thing in the last couple of years? Do you think a, a certain bottom has dropped out in sort of independent film viewership? That's a great question. I don't know. I think the fact that there's so many more TV outlets and so much more good TV quality that I think a lot of the people who used to only be able to identify with characters and storylines in independent film are now finding ability to relate to stuff like that in TV. So I think maybe that 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 pool is, is slowly being drained for that reason alone. But so often the the television that we call good TV, uh, not girls, that I'm, this girls isn't a part of what I'm saying, but so often what we call good TV to me feels like an extended bad 90s movie. Like, <laughs> like, a, like a bank heist gone wrong for two seasons or like a, right. you know, a, a quarreling family like a, that's funny slash dramatic. It feels right. like we extend those, and everyone says, this is really great TV, and I'm like, no, this was like a great movie in 1995 or 96. Right, I think that's true of a lot of TV out there. I guess the episodes, the, the shows I was referring to were shows that are more character and yeah. relationship driven, that if you're invested in those characters, then those storylines can kind of go on and on and on. And I'm thinking of shows like Togetherness mm -hmm. and Transparent, and e even wackier shows like Broad City, too. Yeah, Those are all shows I really love, and I think a lot of those people could only really dig that world and dive into it through independent film up until a few years ago. Well, in regards to Broad City, you know, those guys just made Time Traveling Bong for Comedy Central, which is like a 90-minute miniseries that they made that's like a completely absurd stoner comedy that when I watched it, I was like, this would have been a movie 10 years ago, but this could only exist here now because people are actually going to watch this. Right. I don't think audiences even have 
the stomach for a, a, 90, a straight 90-minute comedy anymore. There's got to be a bigger event to it to get people to go to the movie theater. I think that's fair. I think that's true. Like, I, I don't think, think anyone important. would go see Half-Baked if, if... I mean, Dave Chappelle is in, would be in it, but, like, if Dave Chappelle isn't... You know, if Half-Baked came out now and Dave Chappelle wasn't who Dave Chappelle is right now, I don't think people would... I think, I think there's an argument to be made for that, certainly. Are you saying they wouldn't come out to the theaters or they wouldn't even watch it on their computers? Wouldn't come out to the theaters. Yeah, that's definitely something I agree with. Yeah. yeah. Do you fear that? I mean, is that something that you fear as a creative person? Like, you essentially have more tools at your disposal at this point. You probably could get a little momentum behind you to make a movie. Um, maybe. I, I don't know if that's true. I mean, I, do I fear it? I, I've, got a, I've got a lot of fears in my life. I don't know <laughs> if I have room for, for this fear. Um, I don't fear it. It's just that it's an undeniable just trend. Uh, I don't think there's any real point um, fighting it. I think you know there's only a handful of people that if they did fight it could actually make an impact. People like Tarantino, who will say, "Hey, you know, I'm going to actually fight this. I'm going to make a 70 exactly. millimeter movie. And I'm going to have a tour with it, and it's going to be a whole spectacle." I don't have. I'm not Tarantino, so I'm like if if I protest, I don't think a lot of people. Are gonna what would uh, what would the Alice Karpovsky spectacle movie be? I, I don't know. That's a great question. It would have to be some sort of semi-live theatrical <laughs> performance art element woven into it. So you said you went to England and you hanging out with all these people who were doing sketch comedy, and you sort of got the courage to do it around them. What do you think propels you to keep? creating continue to be creative you know you're at this point where you're acting on this show you could probably get more gigs as an actor you've been in a couple coen brothers movies movies as well what propels you to want to maintain being um a sort of uh, the, the sole creative force behind something what else am i going to do with my days <laughs> i mean i don't i don't really, i have no hobbies i don't have a girlfriend <laughs> i don't have a big family it's like i gotta fill up the day somehow and it's the most interesting thing that i found yet to keep me excited and creatively engaged with my environment. You know, if tomorrow, like butterfly collecting, Trump's acting and filmmaking, I'll probably maybe do that. I don't know. But I just like, it's, just, it's the most fun thing I know how to do at the moment. Mm -hmm. I think that's the honest answer. When you did uh, Tiny Furniture uh, with Lena, so many people have said they saw Tiny Furniture and they knew immediately that she was just such a talent, such a force to be reckoned with. That was her second or third, second feature at second, that point, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Did you know when you were on set, and you know it's extremely low budget, they're probably working really fast and hard, did you feel on set that she was, you know, uh, a force, or was this like a creative collaborator that you knew, and you were making another film with someone that you met at a festival? Um, it was somewhere between those two things. I knew she was, when I met her, she was, I met her at South by Southwest, she was there with her first movie, creative fiction or creative nonfiction. Fiction. I think it's called creative nonfiction. Creative nonfiction. Yeah. And I was just immediately impressed by her. I didn't see the movie yet. I saw it later. But I was just impressed that this 22 or 23-year-old kid made this movie that's very personal in her college dorm at Oberlin, I think, um, and was showing it at like a, a pretty big film festival. So I was impressed by that. And when I talked to her at the festival, I was just impressed by how smart and goofy and self-deprecating and funny she was. So I was like already kind of seeing... I was already kind of, when, I, when she sent me stuff later, like DVDs and then, and then scripts and stuff, I was kind of seeing it through this sort of prism of like, I'm impressed by you, mm -hmm. and I, I'm rooting for you, and I, I want to like anything you show me. Um, and then when I read the script for Tiny Furniture um, just a few months later, I, it immediately felt like this is just so much better than other stuff that like my friends are writing. It's just so much more perceptive. 
And um, I would say perceptive, perceptive as well as structured. I think I went back and watched Tiny Furniture not that long ago, and it's it's a really well structured film. And I think a lot of independent films that you see or low budget films, especially coming out around that time, that were about post college malaise, are very unstructured in a in a storytelling way. They don't really think about the first, second, and third act and sort of leading up to all those sort of payoffs, which she very clearly did in that script. Absolutely. There was structure, there were really full uh, full fleshed characters with really pronounced and engaging arcs. Mm -hmm. This is stuff you just don't really see that often, or at least not executed well in a lot of um, low-budget independent movies. Also, this was a really low-budget independent movie. It was like twenty or $25,000 to shoot. And I think a lot of people, I remember having conversations every now and then at like parties at film festivals where people like, I'm not even gonna bother with a tripod. I'm not even gonna bother to make it look good for 25,000 because it's just gonna be like a, a cheap approximation of the studio movie. So I'm gonna try to do something different. I'm gonna be handheld and I'm gonna be raw. And she didn't do that. She actually, every, every um, shot is on a tripod as far as I remember. She did put some care into lighting and framing, and she made it, strangely enough, that made it stand out from other independent movies. It's beautiful looking. It's all run and gun. Yeah, yeah, and that was a really smart, simple move. I, I mean, the, by. I mean, it does. It, it also helps that she had, I mean, Jodie Lee Leipz at the time, who's gone on to, you know, shoot a lot of incredible stuff. Yeah, she, I mean, and that was really smart too. Like she just, she's really great at assembling wonderful people. Great, building great teams and then keeping those people together. So Jody Lee Leipz shot the movie and operated camera. He came over and set up the look for girls and shot season one and directed one of my favorite episodes, The Craxident, the big party scene in Bushwick in season one. Oh, yeah. yeah he directed that. And uh, and uh, just like wonderful like production designers, wonderful um, producers. She just, people, when people work with Lena, they want to stay with her. And I think that's a testament to just the fact that she's a really not only a smart person, but just a really sort of collaborative and easygoing person. As a collaborative and easygoing person, you know, you, uh, you've played this character now for five seasons, right? Do you have any, care to have any say or ask for anything for Ray to do that you, that you want to see him do or sometimes object to anything that they ask you to do for Ray? Not really, um, because I, I like almost all the ideas that they come up with. I mean, I, I guess 95% of the ideas I like that they come up with. And if I don't, it's not like I don't like it. I just sometimes don't fully understand why he's doing this or why he's going in that direction. So he has so, questions. So he has questions, yeah. yeah. We all have questions. Um, and at the beginning of the season, they usually kind of give you some idea of where the episode, of where his, of where a person's arc goes, um, which is really nice. And from what I understand, that's not always the case in TV. Either people don't know it or they're not willing to share it. Um, and that's really, really helpful because then you can sort of start dropping little subtle crumbs along the way. So when there is sort of a kind of a big revelation or eureka moment or paradigm shift towards the end of the season, it feels organic and earned based on a series of small adjustments. So the, the, more, they, the more we know early on, the, um, the better. And it changes over the course of the season. Um, we shoot chronological, I guess most shows, yeah, forget that last point. <laughs> my, my friend works on a show in England, and, and the way they do TV is very different. They, they shoot it as a movie, the yeah. whole, which to me is a little crazy if you're doing sort of an improv -y, character-driven, relationship-driven things, because things change so much as you shoot along the way. Mm -hmm. You said Mark and Jay Duplass, or Mark Duplass was here, I remember, right? Was Mark yeah, here? Yeah, Mark was here. Who's one of, you know, one, one of my favorite filmmakers, and they shoot every, they shoot their movies, from what I understand, chronologically, um, which That's is really- crazy, I didn't know that. Yeah, you know, uh, it's really important to them. Who, who else shoots chronologically? What, what is his name, Rev, the Revenant guy, Bird, Birdman guy? He shoots chronologically. 
Uh, does he really? Apparently. Whenever he can, he shoots chronologically, and, and that's uh, one of the reasons that like his budgets always like inflate while they're in the middle of shooting. It's apparently. so hard to do. And in a movie like The Revenant, shooting chronologically sounds insane, I think. Yeah, adding that to the mix. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, also going to shoot yeah. this chronologically, guys. Get ready. Yeah. But for Mark, I'm sure he's got his reasons. But Mark and Jay, they shoot chronologically from what I understand just because there is an element of improv and or flexibility mm -hmm. to their movies. And... Um, you know, if, if a big fight goes in a different direction, you've already shot the resolution to it or the makeup, it's going to be weird. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, I kind of got off track there. You, uh, I mean, Tiny Furniture wasn't improvised, but you definitely come from, uh, uh, I think, a school where improvisation was really big in independent film uh, at, at a certain point, right? I mean, your film's a little bit, and then I think a lot of other filmmakers at the time were also experimenting with improv and, and talking about it. Were you surprised that your career sort of ended up sort of uh, having a trajectory into very into a very scripted world? No, no, I don't think so. I don't know if, I, I think like, when people say improv, it could mean a few different things. Like, uh, like sometimes people just show up on stage and they're like, uh, on set and they're like, let's just talk about waterfalls today. And it's just completely out of nowhere. Well, when we're talking about improv, like with independent movies or, in it, or the movies that I make and have been involved with, it's like, it's really like a structured. It's much more like you know what the scene is about. You know what the beats in the scene hopefully are about. You know the motivations. You know what's at stake. You know all this stuff. So, and there, you might even have a script, but you can just sort of bend a few words to make it a little bit more natural mm -hmm. or a little bit more believable. So it's just sort of massaging. I wouldn't really call it like capital I improv. It's just sort of, there's a little bit of suppleness that uh, hopefully you have with the language or, or, or the words or whatever. And what about this film that you're in right now that's at the Tribeca Film Festival, Folk Hero and Funny Guy with Wyatt Russell, where you play a comedian who, who, who bombs quite regularly, mm -hmm. which as you said before, you have a little bit of experience yeah, with. Yeah, more than I care, care, care to admit. Yeah, it's a, it's a movie that I'm really proud of. Um, uh, Jeff Grace is the writer-director, and it's about a comedian who goes on a road trip with a much more successful um, folk uh, singer-songwriter. And it explored, what it, there are a lot of things that I like about the movie. I think the one or two that I feel are worth mentioning is that it really explores uh, the vulnerabilities and insecurities, the fears, the repressed desires and ambitions of, you know, middle-aged, or men in their uh, 20s and 30s, and it's it's. it's you a don't want to cop to middle age. Yeah, I, I felt that to backtrack from that, um, and that's something you just don't. I don't see a lot of, and when I do see it, I usually see it in TV, mm -hmm. and it just it's a whole different world in TV as we've discussed before. But in in, in independent movies, I just don't see it that much. Like. It's just not something that um, is really sort of drilled. Uh, it's not a place that people drill into anymore. So that was really funny, uh, fun for me to do. And um, there wasn't that much improv on it. There was a script, and again, we can sort of bend a few words to kind of make yeah. it seem more believable or flow more naturally out of a person's mouth. But for the most part, we stuck to the script pretty closely. And then the other thing that really attracted me to the movie, the script when I read it, is that it talks about ambition and when, it's, when should you shut it down? And how do you shut it down? Absolutely. And how do you pivot from it? And how can it be resurrected in other forms? And that, to me, is really interesting, too. Because sometimes failure is not just um, the fact that you uh, gave up too early 
or it's not just because um, you haven't had your big break. There could be other reasons too. And the movie kind of explores that, and I think that's a very interesting and mature subject. Well, there, it explores that, but then it also explores, I think, how a friendship can be hurt when the other person is just more successful totally. than you. I mean, insecurity is, insecurity plagues that situation. If you still have any ambition left and you're next to someone who's actually made it or is doing a really good job as a sort of, their job as being a creative person in the world, you, there's no way you're not going to be a little bit jealous. Absolutely. You have to be a little bit. I mean, that's just, it's going to exist nature. inside of you. And how do you hide it? Do you feel you need to hide it? You know, all these sort of things I think are really, really interesting. Yeah, these guys, these two guys in the movie, they've had a friendship that uh, predated either of their successes. Mm -hmm. And then one guy, the singer, got really big and successful. The other guy didn't and abandoned his ambitions for a moment. And, and how do you navigate through that? And your character, I think, even says it at one point about the other guy, which may or may not be true about him, but I don't think the character should be saying it, which is that like he always fails upwards or something mm -hmm, along those mm -hmm. lines, which he's saying to someone about him, which is that he wouldn't necessarily, he shouldn't really be saying that about his friend, but it's so clear how hurt he is that he's the more famous one, which yeah. I think, I'm curious, do you, I mean, I think we all have some experience with that. I mean, you're obviously very successful, you have girls, you're not, but I'm sure you have other friends who are just a little more successful sure. than you. Do you still have that sort of burn inside you at times? Oh my gosh, I think I'd be a total fraud if I said I'm not susceptible to jealousy, um, envy, yeah, of course. What are you, um, what do you think you're jealous of most usually? Well, pe people having, uh, you know, more uh, creative, uh, <laughs> Uh, more outlets and exposure for their creativity. Yeah. I think that's something that uh, I wish I had. And I, I hope, there's a part of me that always hopes I have that. I think that's a part of the drive process. Um, so yeah, there's always, you know, there's someone's got their own show, their own TV show. Yeah, it'd be really fun to have your own TV show. It'd be really fun to have $10 million to make your own movie. How do you respond? It'd be really fun to do a lot of things. How do you respond to jealousy when you hear that? Is your response usually like, mine is always kind of like, oh. Uh, I usually just close my eyes, my mouth, and just storm out of the room and make an effigy of that person and burn it. That's how I deal with it. Just start cursing their name yeah. everywhere you could possibly go. Exactly. Uh, after, you know, after, talk to me about when you got on set for, to, to direct this episode of Girls. Was the cast really excited to have you on board? Were they really happy for you? Was it kind of like a, at this point, is it a family thing where it's like, oh, Alex gets to direct? Um, I think it was a little bit about, a little bit of that. I'm not sure. Exactly. I didn't do a straw poll, but uh, when we had a table read, you know, they kind of introduce um, written by, directed by, and then we read it, and, you know, there's a little bit of applause usually, especially when you have a new director or a new writer. And so when they introduced me, there was a nice little moment where people applauded. That's the only kind of external signs that I feel you did get. Anyone, did anyone, uh, did any of the cast fuck with you on set while you were directing? A little, mm. a little like, you sure, you sure that's what you want me to do, Alex? Uh, and I don't remember that happening. <laughs> so it's a professional environment, is what you're telling me. Well, I think they knew that I was um, that I was it was a, that it was a big challenge for me, and I don't think anyone wanted to take the risk of like uh, potentially poking someone who is under a lot of um, stress. What was the biggest challenge for you about it? Well, there's a there, um, look. I'm used to like uh, having sort of lean and mean crews where you're very nimble and agile hey, this is a noisy corner that's unexpected construction. Let's just go over there. We have no lights. It's easier. Or we might have two lights. It's not a big deal. A lot of the stuff is guerrilla filmmaking where you don't need permits or you don't give a shit about permits. Here, like, 
you know, you're four trucks landing and suddenly there's construction over there or there's like a crazy schizophrenic yelling over there that you can't quiet or whatever. There's just, you're shooting in New York, which is a beast, especially in the summer when everyone's outside. So there's just the challenge of a very chaotic environment. That's something that we, were all, we always battle. But as an actor, you kind of don't pay attention to that battle because it's other people's responsibilities. When you're directing, it becomes something that you have to figure out with your team. When we did that scene at Criff Dog in Williamsburg where Jenny Slate and Lena steal a, um, bicycles. It's a nice wide shot of the, of the, of the front of it as well. The, yeah. The storefront. Looks nice. That was sheer and utter chaos. Really? Like there's, I don't know if we caused it or what, but there was, people gave me different, um, explanations, but there was a huge traffic jam on Driggs. Which well, you're is, on North 7th and Driggs, which is like arguably outside of North 7th and Bedford, which is a block away. It's the most populated block on, in Williamsburg. Yeah, so it doesn't help to have like, you know, 50 trucks there <laughs> blocking it all up. So like every, you know, second there were like five honking horns and people Oof. yelling. And, you know, we have a dialogue scene. And it's like, guys, could you be quiet? These vulnerable girls have to have comedic moments or whatever, you know, we're trying to do. So it was, it was um, that was a challenge. Luckily, as a director, you're not the one who has to go to the construction crew or to the guys honking and ask them to, to quiet, quiet down. No, but at that scale, like, it's, it, it doesn't matter who goes up and talks to them. It was just too many people to control. So you just say, okay, we'll ADR this, we'll fix it in post. Really? Or we'll trim it on the spot. But there, we can't fight this. It's so a just tsunami. sheer logistics was, like, your biggest challenge uh, while shooting the episode. Was there anything mentally that you had to get over as a challenge, or did you sort of revert back to, well, you asked, so let's... Well, <laughs> I think, I mean, I haven't done other TV stuff, but I imagine other TV directors maybe think about this too. It's like, how do I preserve the tone and sensibility of this pre-existing world whilst doing something unique and engaging? So how do I bring my voice to something that's already very lubricated here? And that was sort of something that I tried to think a lot about. I don't want to be too fancy and I don't want to kind of take us out of the world of girls, but I also want to make something that's memorable and that's really... And um, has a bit of a directorial stamp without too much ego. Exactly. So yeah. Exactly. That's perfectly put. So how do you sort of thread that needle is something that I was very sensitive to. And at times it would make me anxious and at times I'd feel a little disoriented. But ultimately I kind of... That's, I wanted to always kind of remember uh, that basic question is how do, how do you create that balancing act. Do you I, got, I got really lucky just to finish yeah. that. I got really lucky in that specific respect because Jenny Slate was one of the... was sort of the co-star of this episode. And... And I say that because I say I was lucky because she's not really part of our girl's world. She only appeared briefly in season one. So we were able to kind of really create a character and a backstory and a specific type of dynamic with Lena um, with her. And that was really lucky. And I felt like we, there was sort of a real creation and collaboration going on there. Whereas if I was just dealing with our cast of regulars, I wouldn't feel quite of, of um like I'm really creating something, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Would you say that sort of Jenny's character and the, the, what the two of you created collaborating together is what you can look back on as your kind of directorial stamp? I hope so. I hope so. Or is, or is there a shot or like a moment or, or somewhere that you can look at it and be like, that was all something that I was really desperate to try to shoot and I got it and I feel it. Well, it was less sort of visual spectacle stuff and more character tone relationship stuff, which is the stuff that I feel like my, happened more in my movies, so I'm a little bit more familiar with. I've never had the tools to make great visual spectacle stuff, so I never really got... We'll get your it. road show at some <laughs> point. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think it was just finding, creating a character with Jenny Slate in, in, in Tally Schiffman that 
would be interesting, engaging, uh, but really it's designed to show a sign, to pull out a sign of Hannah, a side of Hannah that we haven't seen in five years. Mm -hmm. So Hannah is a character we spent a lot of time with. We've seen a lot of different uh, shades of her, um, but can we create a character that she can hang out with that would reveal something new while preserving the tone and sensibility of the show? To me, that is a central challenge in creating the Tally Shipman character, and that to me is sort of, I feel, if there's any stamp, it's, it's that. That in the montage sequence where they get high and listen to Beyonce. It's a great, it's a great sequence. <laughs> I have a question for you before I let you go. Uh, one of the things that we're asking people, you know, our show is called What to Watch. I'm curious what you watched. What are some things that you watched that you feel like developed your sensibility? Well, that's a great question. Um, the thing that really fired me up to make my first movie you know, 10, 11 years ago, was this documentary called Sherman's March by Ross McElwee, which a mutual friend of ours, Brian Spinks, turned me on to. Uh, I thought that was just, I've never seen anything like it. I'm not a huge fan of um, first-person documentaries, but this was real, and, th and this movie is that. But it's so funny, mm -hmm. and it's so perceptive, and so honest, and so moving, and it really blew me away, and I kind of was very inspired by it. Uh, when I tried to make my first movie and maybe full-on like ripped off a few moments of it in my first movie. Um, so that was a big thing. Um, growing up watching Coen Brothers movies was a huge influence for me. I would memorize large passages of them and recite them with my friends. Do you so, have a favorite Coen Brothers <coughs> passage? <laughs> no, nothing I'm willing to share today, no. <laughs> uh, um, it's, it's, it's too personal? It's too, pers too deep. <laughs> Um, no, because I just feel I won't do it justice. Um, oh, but, I wouldn't ask you to say it out loud. <laughs> I oh, wasn't oh. asking you to do a reading. Let's Sorry. just skip over this one. Yeah. Um, but I, I remember like watching Fargo um, in college and before that movies like Barton Fink and mm -hmm. Miller's Crossing and Blood Simple and be like Raising Arizona and be like, whoa, Hudsucker Proxy. All these amazing early movies. And I'd be like, these guys are amazing and they've also just managed to carve out a very specific sensibility and, and voice. Did you tell them that you felt this way when you worked with them the first time? Did you very briefly go, I love all your movies, blah, blah, blah. Okay, whatever you want me to do. No, because I didn't want to seem like a fan. But, um, so I just sort of said, you know, yes, 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 yes. And I just tried to understand what they wanted and execute it. That was our conversation with uh, actor and director Alex Karpovsky. I want to thank him for stopping by. I want to thank people for listening to make it, making it to this point of the podcast where I'm still talking. It's probably about 48 minutes in. You are either uh, really loyal to me, which I don't understand, or you have very little going on, or you died while this was playing, and it's still playing because you're dead and you can't turn it off. Hopefully someone finds you soon. Uh, AOL.com backslash what to watch is where you can watch all of our interviews, sketches, and videos, and episodes. And on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, we release new episodes on AOL.com. If that is confusing in any way, I get it because it's the internet. So you should just go to AOL.com backslash what to watch and watch it whenever you want. It's an on-demand world that we live in. So uh, embrace it, love it, and um, click on our show and give us view numbers. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>